0: hello 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 welcome back to another episode of See things but
1: it's not a regular episode
0: that's right we are starting a new series called in dialogue
1: And in this series, we're going to be bringing you interviews with experts or authors or generally just cool daisies talking about the things that interest them.
0: And we have our very first guest on the podcast, Krish Ashok. So Ashok is an author, blogger, techie, and he has just written a book called Masala Lab, which talks about the science of Indian cooking. Welcome to the podcast, Ashok. (laughs) first of all i want to thank you for not naming the book anything related to curry because it feels like all food related books in india are like either curry or some sort of um,
2: saffron
3: yeah saffron something yeah
0: so thank you for that so masala lab is this really interesting book it's about the science behind indian cooking and what I really liked about it was it tried to put a method to the madness that is the cuisine in the subcontinent. And a lot of our cuisine inherently has a lot of science in it. It's just that we don't think about it that way, right? And that's what that's why we want to talk a little bit about this book and like how we can introduce a little bit of Variations and also how we can try new things in a cuisine that is so proud of its heritage and it sticks to its roots very very strongly.
1: Could you just start by telling our listeners a little bit about your book um, and kind of where this idea came from, how you developed it?
3: So, uh, Masala Lab was uh, was an idea that's that's been in my head for a long while, uh, ever <laughs> since you know I've been cooking. Because I think the the first time I took it seriously was uh, when I left India to live in the United States for about uh, seven or eight years. I lived in San Antonio, Texas, and and so so that was when I sort of said, okay, let me talk to all my grand aunts and you know grandmothers, and all the older people in my family, and really document a lot of their recipes and so on. So that was when I really realized that uh, one, recipes are a terrible way to document uh, culinary history, and two, those old people weren't really great at thinking in terms of recipes. They thought in terms of heuristics. They they didn't think in terms of. Grams and milligrams and uh, those kinds of things, but they had a rough sense of proportion. I mean, they kind of thought in terms of ratios. So they kind of thought in terms of actual visual and other cues in the food that would tell you when something is done and so on. And I said, well, why don't recipes capture that? It's been something that's been in my head for a while, except that I mean, I I have a full time career in IT. So, you know, I've mostly been (laughs) focused on that. But, you know, uh, the interesting thing is that when the pandemic hit and Penguin Random House essentially said, You need to write this book. So that's when I said, Okay, fine, you know what? Let me use all my notes that I've gathered over the last uh, few decades and just, you know, get it out there. We were pretty clear that I did not want to write a cookbook. Um, in fact, the premise of the book is that, you know, you should burn the recipe, right? So you should just, you know, nobody thinks in terms of recipes, except for some reason, all cookbooks seem to think we think in terms of recipes, but we don't. Uh, and many ingredients are switchable, right? So, But people still rely that authenticity, only if you use these 15 things, only this is garam masala, nothing else is garam masala. So clearly, I think uh, we our original thought process was to target the all the young people learning to cook during the pandemic because they were forced to cook, right? Suddenly you know, being stuck at home and so on. Right. But then it eventually evolved as, as I got a, a couple of people to read some of the chapters and said, no, I think, you know, maybe you need to target a wider audience. Perhaps even people who are seasoned really good cooks and, but are looking for ways in which they can do things in a more optimized way. And more importantly, also give, say, a chef or someone else a better vocabulary to document uh, the craft of Indian cooking far better than we're doing right now. A classic example that I often like to give, you take any Indian cookbook, cook tamarind till its raw smell has gone away is a statement you will find everywhere. It is completely meaningless. <laughs> How on <laughs> earth do you actually sort of communicate uh, a smell And then, so it's a a better way to think in terms of saying that, you know, keep tasting the cooked tamarind till it's as less sour as you like it, which is exactly what you're doing. So you're actually increasing the pH of the tamarind so that it gets less acidic and less sour the longer you cook it. And you do it till you like it exactly the way uh, you want it and so on. So, again, it's those kinds of things, right? So, ultimately, that was the uh, sort of overarching premise of the book. And the second premise was that uh, this should not be in the cooking section of the bookshelf in the bookshop, right? Uh, Not that people go to bookshops anymore, but at least notionally, (laughs) publishers still seem to think that uh, people go to bookshops, so they still think in those categories. But it should be in this popular science shelf. For someone who does not cook, has no interest in cooking, uh, can still kind of revise high school science ideas, uh, like basic thermodynamics, basic chemistry, and really think in terms of first principles with your kitchen as your laboratory. So in that sense, I think, so that was the, that was the raison d'etre of the the book, if
0: you would.
1: That's so interesting. I'm the scientist of the group. So it's a scientist with two journalists. And so I loved the detail that you went into about specific reactions, about, you know, like chemical bonds. But that had to be a lot of work, right? Like, I would love to know like your process, your resources, because I love to cook and I love science and I've never really put them together. So this was like, this was my jam, you know?
3: Absolutely. Now, I, I've i always been someone who has enjoyed um, explaining science so all the writing that I've done as a columnist and so on for the last decade decade and a half has always been in the area of technology or science and the intersection and the ability to explain science in really simple terms and I I regularly also sort of uh, do help out say go to uh, say state runs you know poor children's you know schools in India um, and teach them physics uh, and chemistry in, in Tamil in, in, in my mother tongue and so on because otherwise they don't get some of these harder concepts explained to them in a visually intuitive way and so, on. so visual intuition is important to me um, and so which is why I think a lot of the the explanations had to be really from a first principles and also my copy editor said she's an she's a humanities arts graduate and she hated science all her life and she said that this is this has got to be understandable to me don't presume any any scientific knowledge so right? don't use any terms <laughs> that that presume that i know something else don't presume that i know newton's laws don't presume that i know the laws of thermodynamics right don't use any terms Uh, that I might not remember from maximum middle school or high school is about the limit, right? I found myself pleasantly surprised, given the book is doing really well, is that this nobody has written a book on the science of Indian cooking, which is quite surprising for one of the richest cuisines in the world. We've just orientalized it and exoticized it, focusing only on the the society and the the culture and the art and the mysticism of that entire thing, but not really on the the practical science of, of it. And especially in a world where... Food science is becoming so popular, you know, with Kenji Alt-Lopez and Harold McGee uh, and all these in Nosrat and other salt, fat, acid, heat and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, really doing that for Western cooking, uh, I think, you know, this was really, uh, it was really necessary effort.
0: It's really interesting to see how you put the two together. But one thing that I, uh, I wanted to ask you was, while you were kind of experimenting and doing all of this, what was the most surprising discovery about cuisine from the subcontinent?
3: I, I think there were several. I think you know. One is that as I continue to experiment and sometimes also apply a lot of the food science ideas that I read in in, in cooks on Western you know, uh, Western cooking and so on. Right. First is the fact that uh, it's astonishing how almost every cookbook describes pressure cooking in the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. In that they describe in terms of number of whistles, which is terrible. Uh, that's not how pressure cooking works. The principle is that the whistle comes when the the cooker reaches peak pressure which is, you know, one bar above, you know, atmospheric pressure, right? That's a whistle is just a protective mechanism. So it leaves off excess pressure so that it stays at one bar above atmospheric pressure, right? And then what happens is that at that high pressure, that the, the boiling point of water is 121 Celsius. So, you know, you get to cook faster. That's basically what it is. Water stays liquid uh, at even at a higher temperature above 100. So the only reason we hear multiple whistles is that you continue to apply heat and you're continuing to build up that pressure. And so it's continuing to have to sort of release that valve. So all you do is if you apply a really high amount of heat, then the whistle will go off a lot more quicker. It's not going to cook your food any faster. right? So the idea is that once it reaches that first whistle uh, and then you sort of uh, lower the heat and then you measure the amount of time. right? Again, I'm talking about the fact that the vast amount of people in the subcontinent do not have an electronic pressure cooker, which, by the way, takes care of all of this. You will not go to hear a whistle at all because it has a sensor. For most parts of it, it, you know, it just makes sure that so increasingly this is not an issue anymore. But the vast majority of people use manual pressure cookers, and they simply just let it. We have fifteen whistles, sixteen whistles for chana or rajma, and so on. You're all you're doing is you're wasting fuel. And if you use an induction stove, for instance, which puts out way more heat than a regular gas burner does in India, your rice will be undercooked if you go by three whistles. The second really fascinating thing is that all. Experts will tell you that, you know, you need to cook rice in a one is to two ratio. But your grandmother will tell you, no, you use your index finger and you put the water till the first uh, level of your index finger. That's more scientific because rice absorbs only water in a one is to one ratio by volume, right? All varieties of white rice. Brown rice is slightly different. White rice essentially is that. All varieties of rice. The only reason you add more than one cup of water for one cup of rice is to account for evaporation when you're cooking in a pot. So some of the water will evaporate. How much extra water you will add is a function of the kind of vessel you have and the amount of heat you apply and therefore the rate of evaporation. That's about it. right? And therefore, this heuristic of using your index finger is a far more scientific way to do it than to use this wrong heuristic of 1 is to 2, which by the way, people will try and translate to saying 3 cups of rice, 6 cups of water, you will get khichdi, you will not get rice. <laughs> it is, so this is another common thing. But I think in my personal example, I think the most mind-blowing insight that I sort of learned is that marination does not add flavor to meat. So marination adds flavor to the outside of the surface, outside surface of the meat. The acid you add in the marinate, yogurt, lime juice, etc. will denature the proteins of the surface of the meat. That helps the spices stick to the surface. They don't penetrate inside. Every cookbook will tell you that the spices will, you know, for for 24 hours of marination, 48 hours of marination and the spices will enter. Spice molecules cannot enter into into (laughs) this tissue because they're just too large molecules. The only thing that can enter is salt. And so, which is why the new technique is to brine meat, which is to put it in a salt solution. Salt will get inside that will make the meat tastier and also help it retain water. So... If you brine chicken, you'll never have the problem of really bone-dry chicken breast, which is one of the worst cuts of uh, meat uh, in the sense that it's very easy to overcook, right? So the fact that brining plus marination, which you don't need to do for more than half an hour, <laughs> right? So all these claims of 24 hours, 48 hours marination oh, we marinate for an entire week makes no difference.
2: You know, it's fascinating. And there are so many of, I started like, you know, keeping track of all these little hacks and touches that I had never heard of before that, you know, you mentioned to make food more flavorful, softer, faster. Um, And the one thing that, you know, I would love for you to explain is something I've often wondered is about alcohol and Indian cooking. And I've often wondered, like, you know, white wine, I use it in Italian and French cooking, and I I really didn't realize that you could use it in Indian cooking. So if you could explain alcoholic tarka and so on. (laughs)
3: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, alcohol is actually so uh, so if you if you describe Japanese cuisine, uh, Japanese cuisine is a umami centered cuisine in a sense that the the primary flavoring agent if you will is the presence of glutamates in some shape or form. It could come from you sort of cooking, you know, uh, pork uh, pork bones or beef bones or whatever it is, you get a ton of umami, right? And that is what carries a lot of the flavors. It amplifies all of the flavors. So uh, so Japanese food can actually be very minimalist. So you don't have to have a ton of spices, etc. Because a little bit of umami amplifies everything else, right? So that's so it's very centered on creating broths that are flavorful. Uh, be it using dashi and all the other stocks and seaweed and all those other things, right? And fish and seafood, which has a naturally a lot of umami, right? Indian cooking is what I describe as largely fat-centric cuisine. In that almost all cooking starts with heating oil, of some kind, fat of some kind, and then throwing in spices of some kind. The combination of fat and the spices you use vary by region. So right. if it's uh, if it's Bengal, it's mustard oil and panchforan. If it's uh, Kerala, it's coconut oil and, say, ginger, garlic, and, and so on. Uh, if it's Tamil Nadu, it's sesame oil and fennel and chilies and so on. Long story short, at the end of the day, it's it's basically fat-centered cuisine. So spices don't work without fats. Spice molecules dissolve only in fats. They are not water-soluble. So let's remember that the the part of the cooking when you add water of some kind, right, uh, is essentially when the flavor starts going down, not up. spice flavors the longer you cook they get dissipated into the air now there is you know there's good reason to do it because you're adding a ton of it so you want to bring it down to the level where you just like it where it is and you know and and then then to sort of add some finishing spices and so on but if you want the flavor to remain in the food you need to get it into fat so that's why we do tadka either at the start or at the end right the second thing that spices dissolve in is alcohol and alcohol is is interesting because unlike fats which stay in the food and you eat it and it's, it's all calories that you get, alcohol burns off. And then they actually disperse the flavor throughout the gravy, giving the opportunity for any, you know, uh, lost uh, flavor molecules to get into fats and get dissolved uh, in it. So which is why Italian cuisine and all of that, but cuisines that use alcohol, right, essentially use it for two purposes, right? One is that they use it to deglaze the pan. So essentially when you're sautéing something, things yeah. are going to get stuck. Especially if, you, if you're using stainless steel, things will get stuck. And you use alcohol, it's going to deglaze the pan. So you actually get, and then it'll lose water, it'll lose the alcohol, it will extract the spice molecules, and you actually get a really thick uh, kind of a sauce, which, which, which really is much, much more flavorful. So which is why your typical Punjabi tadka that you start at the, you know, in terms of ghee and... Uh, Spices and ginger, onion, garlic, tomato, right? So it's the base for almost, you know, yeah. most dishes, right? So, you know, with that one base, an Indian restaurant could churn out like some 20 dishes. Like <laughs> paneer Bakhanwala, this, there, you know, okay. Gobi, Jaipuri, whatever, right? So just use combination of uh, ingredient and city is is like, you know, you can churn out any variation. <laughs> <dishes, right>? Yeah. <laughs> So you know, veg jaipuri veg Hyderabadi, veg whatever, <laughs> puri or whatever. Yeah. In, in any case, so the whole idea is that uh, now introduce alcohol into the mix when uh, after you just do ginger, onion, garlic, tomato. That's when a lot of stuff is going to get stuck at the bottom, and you and the garlic has a chance of burning. You add spl- sad some alcohol. That will make ultimately that gravy a lot more tastier. And not only that, depending on what alcohol you use, if you're using vodka, it's fine. It's just ethanol and water so yeah. you know, not much you are using something like rum or brandy you're going to get all the complex sweetness of the molasses or the other you know burnt grape juice flavors of brandy and so on which incidentally adding sweetness complex sweetness to a dish will always improve its flavor uh, and so that's why i think alcohol is a fantastic uh, addition but the, the the social or political reason why it we do not use alcohol um, is, is very, very complex. Um, it, it, it There are many, many factors. It's not a simple... Uh, right. One, you know, people will say simple things like it's a tropical place, so there is no drinking culture. Say, Have you been to Brazil? Have you <laughs> seen the amount of yeah. drinking they do there? That's a c- absolutely silly reason. There, there's no connection. So as long as there are uh, sugars, carbohydrates of some kind, and air and water, there will be alcohol anywhere in the world because yeast is everywhere. Um, right. And yeast will turn... Any starch and any sugar into alcohol, everything ferments, right? Um, and so every culture in the world ha- has alcohol, except that in India. Uh, so because we have the caste system and so on, you, alcohol has been seen as a problem with the right. upper caste sort of communities. The lower caste communities are, have very, very rich brewing traditions. Now, what ended up happening is that the British came in and obviously, I think, you know, the uh, One of the things they often do, the British often do, is to control local industries, right? Indeed. Indians had to sort of, you know, only sort of grow the cotton, but not spin clothes because that had to be imported from Manchester, right? So that uh, the guys there make most of the money. So that's how colonialism worked. And they did the same with alcohol. So they were the ones who controlled the supply of alcohol and they wanted to make sure that Indians would only buy Scotch whiskey and stuff, uh, European wines, and not have their own local brewing traditions. So, in fact, the laws on the books that we have preventing a lot of the anti-alcohol laws that we have today were not written post-independence. They were written by the British in like the 1850s. And we have just not, you know, we have, we have yeah. not removed them at all, right? Uh, so there, there's an intrinsic, obviously, upper caste mistrust of anything related to alcohol. And it's seen as, a, oh, only poor people, only lower caste people drink alcohol. And uh, there's uh, it's immediately conflated with alcoholism and domestic violence and all right. of which are genuinely true issues. Uh, but I think, you know, it's uh, the whole idea is that it's uh, definitely overblown. Uh, and I think... Uh, a lot of the the local alcohol that's sold here uh, is is so bad that you're better <laughs> off using it in cooking rather than uh, attempting to drink <laughs> it. So, so that's basically you know what we end up doing because it's a state controlled uh, alcohol monopoly here, at least in many states. So you don't want to use some fine you know uh, Johnny Walker or you know, one of the single malt whiskey for your cooking. You want to use the shadiest you know local rum and local brandy, and that's that's really good.
1: Well, I will tell you. In our house, Sarb has been putting tiny bits of old monk in everything now because he's been so inspired. (laughs) Yesterday, he made dal and he was like, "It's so good." I put old monk in it. I was like, "Okay." So you're probably not going to get you know my mom or your mom to start putting alcohol in their third god, right? That's just not going to happen. But it's a great trick for the modern indian right especially if it allows you to harness that flavor without the nuance of like it smells like i think i can speak for all of us when i call my mom for a recipe she says it should smell like this and then half the ingredients are missing because salt haldi mirchi are all implied In what proportions <laughs> exactly. you don't know right it drives me crazy because i make it and then i'm like mom it doesn't taste anything like yours and she's like but didn't you put mirchi You know, honestly, it is implied now. I understand that now that I've cooked more. But when you start, you don't know what's implied. These little hacks can almost overcome that, right? Like if I can harness the flavor of what I have with a splash of bourbon, I can move on (laughs) to bigger and better things.
3: If I had to use a sort of a computer science term here, the, the idea was to also, towards the latter half of the book, after I sort of focus on the initial science basics, this, the last two chapters are about meta Meta Metamodels in the sense of, <laughs> uh, don't learn recipes, but learn what different pieces go into these recipes. So what's like a generic gravy? What's like a generic salad? What's like a generic chutney? And then what do you do in a chutney that adds this flavor, right? So, so chutney essentially has an acidic component. It has a heat component. It has a, a fat component or whatever it is, right? So, and that balance, right? So, and then, you know, then let, you know, leave it free for people to uh, sort of experiment. So I think that, that was the intent here as well.
2: That really speaks to me because I, that's been my philosophy in learning to cook. And I think it really works with Indian cooking, especially because it's like, if you know the concept and the preparatory processes, yeah. then you can keep experimenting, which is why a lot of times when I have friends who you know, follow just a specific recipe, and they're like, "I know how to cook two things," and I'm like, "How is it that you know only that that just no? It's the same template. Like you just change you change a few things, and you can cook exactly, anything. Exactly. Like
3: <laughs> so, neuroscience also tells us that building meta models is how we learn. I mean, right. a lot of modern science this is how we learn, right? So we form abstract models without specifics, right? Uh, Which is why my eight-year-old son, uh, although he's not been taught a specific, uh, and English is a terrible language, has so many exceptions. So instead of say leaving, he'll say lefting, Uh, but then he, the better model in his mind is to add ING to whatever he says, to bring it into a present continuous thing. So we deal with complexity in the world only by building metaphors, right? And so it's therefore natural that our cooking, which is so sophisticated, should also have the same things.
1: Yeah. I think yesterday Sarb was calling it algorithmic cooking. (laughs)
3: That's exactly what our grandmothers were doing. Uh, they weren't, you know, sitting and worrying about whether, oh, the, the list of 20 ingredients that's there in this recipe, do I have all of it? Uh, they almost always instantly thought of, what do I replace this with? I'm not buying a 200 gram packet of chicken masala just to bake this one dish. Okay, uh, I'm just either going to grind it fresh or I'm going to skip all of that and just use this, right? So, or replace uh, that with, you know, by the way, as I say, a quarter teaspoon of any spice, you can safely just ignore it. Not, for most part, you're not going to smell it at all, right? People will say, oh, this recipe requires nutmeg. And by the way, the average person will fail a blind taste, uh, smell test between distinguishing between nutmeg, star anise, and something, you know, very specific that's right. You kind of experience it in, a, in, say, a garam masala, which has everything, where so you can't detect anything, you know, individual in that at all. Uh, but for most part, you can skip most ingredients that you don't have. Don't buy like a giant box of spice powders that's going to sit in your kitchen counter and oxidize and become sand in no time.
0: I mean, that happened to me as like when I was a grad student here, I basically bought a box of sabzi masala and used to occasionally use it. But then eventually when I got a job and moved somewhere else, that box essentially became sand and I would try to add like a lot of it. <laughs> Just to finish it because typical desi.
3: Yeah, powdered spices are uh, don't need cooking. That's the first thing. The first misconception is that you need to cook spices. There's no such thing called cooked spices. What is happening with spice is that you you're you're trying to do one of your what you're essentially doing is trying to get as much of it into the fats. That's what you're trying to do. Number one. Number two, during the cooking process, you're trying to reduce any any sort of aroma loss, which is what's happening as long as it's in water any uh, molecule that has not been dissolved into fats is going to just leave uh, into the air, right? So you're losing the aroma and therefore the taste, right? That's what you're doing. There is no such thing as cooking spices. So that's number one, right? Uh, Number two, the later you add a powdered spice in the cooking process, the less flavor you lose. And therefore, the stronger the taste is. So if a recipe says, add a tablespoon of dalia powder, along with the cooking, the, the tomato, you know, at the base gravy, right? You can safely replace that with a, a a quarter teaspoon or a teaspoon added right at the end. It makes no difference, and you'll save on dhania powder is what you will do. <laughs> uh, and yeah, that's you can make it go a long way. I and mean, that way, you can actually just buy dhania seeds and just grind it, you know, on a weekly basis. Uh, and then really, ha- and by the way, the taste difference between freshly ground dhania powder from the whole dhania and the store-bought yeah. dhania powder with all of its uh, preservatives and all the other citri- other things that it has to you know, sort of keep it uh, uh, stay for longer and so on, is that the taste of your homemade uh, dhania powder is going to be much, much better.
2: Awesome hack. I just want to shift text uh, for a second um, and address uh, something which I think is very uh, timely right now in, you know, the cultural conversation about authenticity. You know, I found, you know, your perspective um, in the book about authenticity really fascinating. Uh, you you write, no two recipes for a dish Tend to be the same in India, so authenticity as a concept yeah. is lost in this context. So, can you tell us a little bit about your perspective in the authentic cooking debate, and what does that mean for those who are learning to cook Indian food?
3: Perhaps this this conversation happens at two levels. Uh, there's uh, there is meaning in talking about authenticity in the limited context of something like cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. right? So, in the sense of you know you know white chef in you know UK or US. Try to make an Indian dish and take credit for it, uh, uh, and so on. So there's a conversation about saying that boss, you know, uh, this is this doesn't feel authentic in that sense, in a very limited sense, right? But in the typical day-to-day sense, the uh, concept of authenticity is completely silly. Uh, although I say it's quite silly, it's also natural that people want to believe in it. There's a reason why they want to believe in it because, you know, as I say in the the, the spices and the flavor chapter, our perception of flavor has as much to do with our nostalgia and our memories of having eaten it before yeah. as it has to do with the, the real-time experience of that taste, right? The reason why your mother's dal tastes better than a Michelin star dal is not because your mother's dal is objectively better. It's because you have memories of it. The aroma perception happens in the same part of the brain that processes uh, uh, that also processes nostalgia. So we are food, flavor images. There's a book called Neurogastronomy. basically says that flavor images are stored in the same way your memories are stored Um, and so therefore uh, food has a strong evocative nature of bringing back those memories so you don't quite realize it's actually nostalgia you get that wave of that oh this is an amazing that what you're actually experiencing is your brain remembering how eating something like this uh, in a pleasant setting uh, with fond memories at some point of time in the past and obviously it's quite natural that every individual's experience of this is going to be unique Right? Uh, we grew up in different families with different food cultures, with different habits. And in India, by the way, food habits are very strongly tied to caste. Every caste has its own community, has its own cooking habits. I mean, caste identity is defined by what you don't eat rather than <laughs> what you eat. Right? Right. Oh, we don't eat garlic, we don't eat onion, we don't eat meat, we don't eat fish you know, and so on. Right? So therefore, everyone naturally is going to have a different experience. Uh, so because if the feeling is so strong, people believe that whatever they experience is authentic. And they're somehow not able to appreciate uh, that someone who enjoys uh, chocolate dosa or a Szechuan dosa uh, in Bombay can genuinely enjoy it because that person may not have memories of home-cooked dosa uh, made by his mother and grandmother, right? So he doesn't have those memories, so he's able to appreciate it for being a new and novel experience. Whereas you, having the baggage of having eaten dosa all your life for breakfast, have a different uh, sort of uh, memory and perception of it, right? And so on. It is just, I think, it's just fodder for random, you know, social media trivial tri- uh, sort of, you know, trivialization more than anything else, right? And the other, the other element here is simple history. Half the ingredients that we cook with today weren't around uh, 200 years ago before the the British introduced it, right? Um, In Tamil Nadu, in fact, uh, carrot, uh, French beans, uh, cauliflower, uh, cabbage, a whole ton of these vegetables are still called in small towns, they're called English vegetables because they were introduced by the English. So, the local beans and the local uh, gourds and the local tubers uh, and uh, yams are very different, right? Potatoes when there, chilies when there, tomatoes when there, and all of these other vegetables when there. Forget that. I mean, in, in Tamil Nadu, where I come from, turda is new, is only 200 years old because the Marathas introduced turda uh, to Tamil Nadu. The, the, the dal that is used in Tamil Nadu is mung dal, right? So, Pungal, which is sort of the harvest festival, features rice and mung dal, right? Not turda. But sambar has turda because sambar is actually a Maharashtrian dish that got transported uh, to, to Tamil Nadu and so on. So the interesting thing is that simple history will tell you that uh, what you eat today, 100-150 years ago, they wouldn't even recognize it as food. So what is your definition of tradition? Is it 1,000 years? Is it 500 right. years? So there is a historical arc. But there is also the practical day-to-day cooking. You know, Every recipe that's written down is the result of one successful experiment somebody did in their kitchen with whatever ingredients they had. You don't get to call that authentic. It's as simple as that. Yeah. So it's it, it's just. I think that's the that's the foundational fallacy. I think it also gets in the way of your ability to enjoy an experiment. Right. I'm not saying a chocolate dosa may be nice, but I think <laughs> why begrudge someone who enjoys it? Right?
1: No, I think I've learned a, a lesson here because I'm Kashmiri, and I think I take it like. Rogan Josh very seriously in my life. And so I like when I go to restaurants, I'm like, this isn't Rogan Josh, but other people are enjoying it. So like, I'm going to back off. Thank you for this uh, pep talk about authenticity.
0: I think one theme that I've that has come up in our conversation today is that cost is a big food thing, right? And and I want to be very aware of here, are, at least the three of us are like upper class brahmins here. Oh, sorry, all four of us. So it's kind of like. We should have a voice from Absolutely. communities that are not often highlighted. So if I may ask you, what are we missing in terms of food?
3: No, I think so. It's, it's very obvious. Um, so as in, you know, I, I grew up in a, a vegetarian household, but I eat everything so that, you know, I'm able to experiment. I'm able to also experience uh, other cuisines in that, you know, so p- part of the part of the really insidious thing about caste in India is that its association with food actually prevents you from going to somebody's house and sharing a meal, which is one of the most human things that you can do to build a relationship. But you can't. You can't because you don't eat meat. You can't because you don't eat garlic. Uh, you, you can't because you don't like the smell of mustard oil or oh, whatever those reasons. I think it's it's just terrible uh, that we end up being insularly, our food habits are, are bought up in such a way. And because of the way the neuro sort of uh, neurology of food works, is that what you eat during your childhood plays an inordinate role in what you are able to eat for the rest of your life, which is why it's so hard to build a taste for fish, so hard to build a taste for something that looks for it, right? Um, and we do that within our own country, so there is clearly that, right? Um, and I was I was very conscious. I th- in fact, one of the things I say in my preface is that look, this is a this has a very urban upper middle class, which therefore naturally translates to upper caste for most part, uh, sort of a bias because. We, if you really think about uh, the vast majority of Indians, the frugality and their techniques uh, and how they cook is very, very different. They use definitely parts of vegetables and parts of animals that, that the richer people will not use. Uh, they use a lot more frugal, uh, less, you know, sort of a far more fuel efficient cooking techniques with far fewer uh, ingredients. If you look at a lot of these YouTube channels about country, style cooks, so off late, at least, in, uh, there's a lot of these South Indian channels where some obviously grandson of a hundred year old lady or someone, there's a there's a lady called Masthanama in Andhra Pradesh who who has this YouTube channel with millions of followers. She was cooking well into her hundreds. So she was 102 years old when she finally passed away. Now that she was still cooking <laughs> on YouTube and her grandson, who's obviously IT guy, he has all the privilege now. So he got educated and so on. He just puts a camera and watches her cook in the countryside, right? So they literally go cut coriander leaves. They go catch a fish. I mean, it's literally fantastic to watch, right? And you should see the style of cooking they do is so minimalist, and I kind of call this out briefly in my book. Said all the complexity of all the things that we do in Indian cooking is a is far a very upper caste patriarchal background that expected that men will literally make women cook elaborate dishes, uh, ground up with fresh ingredients, right. Uh, with no expectation that the woman will do anything else. We'll just sit at home and do cooking. But the village woman has to go, ha, has to do labor in their field as well, right? So a lot of their cooking styles are a lot more optimized, talk, take a lot less time. They're a lot more one pot, one shot. So again, as I said, I think the universe beyond this sort of very privileged, uh, urban upper caste conversation on food, uh, is ex- it does exist. And I think it really genuinely needs a lot more. There are some new, there's Goya Journal or a couple of other places that are starting to document these traditions. And I think YouTube is a fantastic resource, especially as, as India has continued to grow economically. I think a lot of people from other those segments of society who are now in positions of privilege uh, are able to turn a camera and say, hey, look, these are our traditions, right? Be it cooking beef, be it cooking uh uh, very rare things like blood sausages or northeastern fermentation traditions um, or uh, cooking of, say, toddy chicken in, in, in rural Andhra, right, which is a fantastic uh, sort of dish. I think this this is clearly happening. It needs to happen a lot more, absolutely.
2: And I think this is an important conversation uh, for the diaspora to be having as well, because obviously, uh, you know, the communities, um, largely upper caste communities that have, oh, yes. you know, migrated to the West, um, you know, their their food habits and their cuisines have kind of become very central in the narrative of what Indian food is in the West.
3: Exactly. For for starters, the misconception that most Indians are vegetarian essentially comes from this. Right. So the state I live in. Right. So because of a small percentage of people who disproportionately represent Tamil people outside of India, uh, people think Chennai is the capital of vegetarian food in India. Tamil Nadu is 98 percent meat eating. In fact, Tamil Nadu, Kerala, and West Bengal are the most meat-eating states in the country. The per capita consumption of poultry is the highest in Tamil Nadu in, across India. Chennai is the only city probably on the planet, and this is my own trivia, that has more KFC than McDonald's because people <laughs> are well and truly crazy about chicken. Uh, so it is a lot of that misconceptions do exist because the broader demographic of India is just so much more diverse Uh, And you're right uh, in that uh, NRIs particularly live in a far more insular, uh, I would say borderline ghettoized sort of view of what Indian culture is. And they end up sort of representing that as well.
1: And I think it's really interesting because like, I didn't know that about Tamil Nadu till very recently about, because, you know, I'm also like from this community in India where like the Brahmins eat meat, right? So I think we feel kind of looked down upon in some way that like people are like, oh, you're Brahmin, but you eat meat, but whatever. So we've just made it like, oh, all of South India is vegetarian. Like if you ask my mom, she'll just be like, yeah, they eat sambar. Like, do you, So I think the education within the country also needs a lot of work, right? Punjab is not all paneer tikka masala, you know, Kashmir is not all meat. Like, there's a lot of other stuff going on that we're not exploring.
3: Punjab has the highest percentage of vegetarians in India. Would you believe it? No. <laughs> really? You <we> would associate <laughs> butter chicken with Punjab, right? Yes. <laughs> but Punjab is the most vegetarian by percentage of population state in India. And Tamil Nadu, Kerala and all are 98 and above percentage uh B.T.T.
1: It's so interesting because you see these like little tips happen, right? Like on Twitter the other day, some director has gone up to Srinagar to shoot a movie and he was like, Kashmiris don't know anything about vegetarian food. I will bring vegetarian vase on. And the Kashmiris lost their mind because they have like, I mean, there's only like 10 of us on Twitter, but like, you know, at the same time, we were like, we have a rich heritage of vegetarian food that you're ignoring because of this one thing that's been exported. So it's just interesting.
3: I mean also what you eat is a what you eat on what you call tradition at least is a simple function of economics and geography right uh, if you're in the mountains you're not going to have a vegetarian cuisine because you can't grow crops for half the year yeah <laughs> so you got to have animal husbandry and that's essentially what it is i mean you know kashmiri pandits uh, have to eat peat because they wouldn't eat anything else uh, during the winter uh, seasons you know uh, about 200 years ago right um, likewise if you're on the coast Exactly. And you exactly. won't eat the most cheapest protein that's right there, <laughs> right. just there for your taking. Uh, it doesn't make sense, right? So, you know, all coastal uh, communities will be sort of fish eating.
1: I mean, these are the WhatsApp forwards we need now, you know? Like, this is what we need to explain.
2: I want to ask, um, you know, just some rapid fire questions. <laughs> <laughs> to...
0: This is our version of coffee with Karan. Not
2: to live from Karan, <laughs> um, but completely. You know,
0: that after... reminds me,
3: that kind of reminds me. Coffee, so... <laughs> People think South Indians are, oh, coffee, this thing. Vast majority are tea drinkers. Coffee (laughs) is an expensive drink, affordable only by the upper caste uh, folks and so on. So only by the rich. They should have called it tea with current, yeah.
2: (laughs) Chai with (laughs) current. That's not going to seem modern and global enough. For Keijo. Um I'm curious, uh, what's a go to meal or dish that you've perfected during the pandemic that you didn't know before?
1: And would you share a quick recipe with our
3: listeners? Sure, so. sure. So, in fact, as I because I think in terms of these uh, algorithms, if you will, right? So, one <laughs> of the things I did in order to diversify what I eat so that I don't end up eating the same thing again and again is that I have a Monday Southeast Asian, Tuesday North Indian. Uh, Wednesday, South Indian, Thursday, uh, uh, Mexican, American, Italian, something from the West and so on. The one dish uh, that I've, I particularly want to share is this idea of making desi bakes, right? Uh, so basically this casserole kind of one pot dish, which again is remarkably quick to put together. Uh, and then you just put it in the oven for half an hour. And then, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of it, you you get a not very healthy, but very, very tasty Uh <laughs> Uh, meal right so one is uh, one is sort of like a makhani bake so the basic idea is that you can do this with pasta you can do this with whatever you can do this with gobi for all you can Uh, it doesn't really matter the idea is that the, the different components are that you first saute or sort of deep fry the gobi if you want sinful you can deep fry you can just saute till it's brown right you keep that aside you make a makhani base which is your sauce right and then you make a some, some kind of a base that can gelatinize and emulsify the whole thing. So normally in a bake, it's usually a mix of butter and uh, flour uh, that kind of makes the roux and then you add milk, right? That's one way of doing it. Uh, but then it, to that, you can actually add ginger, garlic, and other flavoring to make that entire roux a lot more flavorful. Uh, coriander and things like that, turmeric and all of that. So you keep all of these things. The other option is that if you don't want to use the flour-based roux, you can whisk eggs and then add a little bit of rice flour. That also makes for a much healthier, higher protein uh, sort of thickening agent, right? So you basically then assemble the the cooked vegetables or meat or whatever it is, right? And then you pour the makhani sauce on top. And then you pour, uh, you kind of mix the the, the white sauce or whatever, the thickener sauce that you do. uh, And then you top it off with uh, a cheese of your, uh, mix of cheeses. In general, with Indian food, I found that feta cheese works particularly well, (laughs) sour and salty works beautifully but a mix of feta cheese and any other cheap cheese i think should be fine um, you get you get yourself a very desi bake right um, and then you can just have it with garlic bread or you know some sort of thing it's a very quick thing that you can actually bake. and I, I thought this is something that uh, my entire family really enjoys if the, if, the, if it's not a buccane sauce uh, you can actually make a chutney nut sauce a chutney nut sauce is basically uh, uh, so the spice mix is basically <coughs> sesame oil uh, fennel uh, ginger garlic uh, and chilies lots of chilies lots of red chilies right uh, and then tomatoes. Uh, and then uh, if not tomatoes, you can actually use tamarind as well. So basic ideas, so you can make different kinds of sauces, or you could make a Kerala style one with uh, the same sort of uh, a coconut oil, ginger, garlic, curry leaves, and so on. But then use coconut uh, uh, milk uh, to make that sort of a saucy base, right? So depending on, you can just mix and match. You can make a Malabar style bake if you want. So, or a Goan style bake.
1: How many times have these bake slash experiments failed? Like, do you want to tell us about a great fail?
3: Yeah, so normally where they will tend to fail in the context of baking is uh, one is that you kind of underestimated the amount of time uh, that something takes to cook in the oven. Uh, convection takes air; convection by air takes the most amount of time because air is a poor conductor of heat. Cooking in water is faster, so normally your your vegetables don't end up cooking. Uh, that's it's a very common thing, uh, and uh, you and if you're using meat, meat will overcook. So if you're doing meat and vegetables, there's a good chance that the vegetables will undercook and the meat will overcook. So that happens very regularly. So I think the lesson there is to get it 80% done outside separately and then mix it and then put it in the oven. Uh, so the other, other other problem that often happens is uh, salting in a dish like this is not a one-shot thing. You have to salt the vegetables. You have to salt the sauce. You have to salt um. everyone appropriately and hope that it does not add up to being too salty. <laughs> so we, we all kind of have this rule of thumb that I'm making one gravy I kind of know that that one spoon, if I lose that spoon, I I don't know how to salt, right? So that kind of, uh, people have that sort of uh, muscle memory with that. Salt, at the end of the day, is actually a mentally a heuristic about percentage by weight. So in general, you're aiming for, as the book says, between 1.5 and 2% by weight, right? Now, again, obviously, who's sitting and weighing a dish, right? (laughs) But you can actually gain intuition for that as well, right? It's simple science. Most of what you're cooking is water. All the ingredients that you cook are mostly water. A carrot Is 88% water, like a cucumber is 95% water and so on. Uh, All the things that you cook are largely water. So if you can sort of work out a a mental mnemonic by which you can estimate the weight of water in a pan, which is much easier to do, right? Uh, Because volume of water is the same as the weight of water. So 1000 liters, 1000 ml of water is is 1000 grams and so on, right? So it's easy for you to look at a dish and say, hey, three-fourths, this looks to be about 750 grams roughly okay because you can just estimate the weight of water and for 750 grams you can then appropriately calculate 2% and that would be a starting point for you to uh, think about salt right but it gets very tricky if you have to do this uh, across multiple steps <laughs> yeah. so there are a lot of these uh, individual uh, once i think i ended up undercooking the gobi and uh, you'd be surprised that it you know even half an hour sometimes in the oven and the gobi gets brown on the outside, but it's not chicken inside. So, yeah.
2: I love one-pot meals, and I'm also now very inspired by your food calendar idea. I really like that. So I'm going to try that.
3: Yeah. Actually, my favorite quick hack was actually the microwave subg. That I think is if you're really short on time, right? Um, and this, incidentally, it works only with yogurt-based gravies and coconut milk-based gravies for a reason, okay? Because microwaves only heat water. So uh, you can't cook anything in oil. Uh, in the microwave. It has to be something that kind of cooks in a water fat emulsion like, like yogurt or, or coconut milk. Coconut milk is safer because the emulsion is stronger whereas a yogurt once heated kind of breaks. right? So the key thing here is to get yourself garlic powder and onion powder. These are amazing ingredients. I mean, all your consumer snacks use those. They are incredibly addictive and they have a ton of flavor. They pack a lot more flavor than the fresh ingredients themselves and in a microwave you don't have enough power to cook actually onions and garlic so you basically take a coconut uh, milk base into which you add, you drop a can of chickpeas cooked chickpeas uh, you drop uh, um, any other herbs that you might want to and you drop uh, uh, gar- garlic powder onion powder dhania powder any and all spices you want there's enough fat in the coconut milk to to keep it inside and then about uh, five minutes in the microwave um, and then if you want you can do a tadka if you want uh, we'll get you an instant sabji it tasted way better than I expected it to because of the <laughs> onion and garlic powder, right? Um, and it just makes a huge difference. And it's a, you can make something really, really quickly.
2: These are great. Uh, quick thoughts on recipe bloggers?
3: As p- part of the research of what I tend to do on a daily basis that obviously read multiple recipes, kind of look at what people are saying. And I mentally kind of, you know, sort of, you know, stop looking at about 95% of them because... The moment they say things like, till the raw smell of tamarind goes away or cook rice till two whistles, I know that they're probably using the wrong heuristics and so therefore uh, not really worth so. So over time, I've kind of uh, begun to appreciate the work of a few uh, recipe bloggers and uh, recipe writers who clearly kind of understand the science a lot more intuitively uh, and who actually test recipes a few times before they actually write. I would rather have millions of recipes that not have anything at all, uh, but I would ideally like to have lots of recipes, uh, preferably written, in a more um, in a using a, a vocabulary that makes it easy to transmit that knowledge more uh, accurately uh, to someone who's reading it. So that's really my thing. So otherwise, yeah, I have nothing against a recipe bloggers per se.
1: I mean, they're fine. Do I need to know about your trip to Spain before you give me the paella recipe? Probably not. But <laughs> well,
2: now we know. Now we know why because it's the memory that is important in the taste. Oh,
3: <laughs> so I, at the end of the day, also right. So the recipe writers will believe that. Hey, come on, I'm giving this to you for free so you know fair enough it's a freebie model you have to read my you have to read <laughs> my travel story before you get the recipe for free so it's a that's that's the
0: bargain i think feta cheese has been a revelation to me since i moved to the u.s are there some things from here that are not that common in india that can be used here for indian cuisines can you talk a little bit about that
3: no so lots of things actually so I found that, uh, that the sheer diversity of chilies, uh, Mexican chilies, all right. Uh, Indian chilies are monotonously one dimensional. Uh, so they're just all heat, very little flavor. There are some varieties of chilies, which is like really hot and also has a lot of flavor. Uh, there's a Kandari chili in, in Kerala that is also tiny, but like bird's eye chilies, really, really a lot of flavor as well. Uh, but for most part, uh, it's very monotonous. I mean, I think, uh, Especially if you're living in like California or particularly in the, in the south of the US, uh, the variety of chilies and bell peppers you get—that entire family of you know the, the Solanese family of all those bell peppers, mm. tomatoes, and all of that—is just fantastic, right? So things like uh, Fresno peppers, candy peppers, <coughs> wax peppers, uh, uh, and things like habanero, which have a ton of flavor, work perfectly. You know, um, I uh, so one of the, so before the pandemic hit, uh, I used to travel. Uh, to the u.s once a month literally so hop on a flight sit 30 hours for some business meetings and then come back so i used to do this once a month so clearly my shopping was essentially just food ingredients yeah i I could carry 70 kilograms back so three suitcases just pack them full of uh, (laughs) i would buy potatoes believe it or not 10 pounds of russet per bank or idaho potatoes which again the potatoes in india are uh, low starch high moisture uh, the potatoes there are high starch, low moisture, perfect for crisping and fries and, and those kinds of or baked potato and so on. And Indian potatoes are great for like puri sabji and pretty much that, right? Um, <laughs> so I would carry back uh, bell peppers. I would carry back avocados. I would carry back the adobo uh, uh, jalapeno, uh, sorry, chipotle chilies and adobo Whoa, sauce. So good. Trust me, you make dal with that. It is just out of the world. Use use that as you would use the way you would use tomatoes or ginger or on your garlic, just put it, drop it into the uh, hot oil during the initial part. And trust me, it adds so much depth of complex smoky flavors. Uh, people will be wondering whether you this is some dhaba style dal whether you get that <laughs> natural tandoori smoky flavor. But all that smoke flavor is already there in the, uh, the chipotle chilies, right? Uh, I also think uh, uh, peanut butter is something that is very, very underutilized. Uh, in the context of India. India produces a ton of peanuts, right? But we, peanut butter is not very popular. Um, you can make fantastic sabjis, which is uh, especially uh, Maharashtrian and uh, Andhra, where most of the peanuts are grown, have a lot of dishes that feature peanuts. It's a little bit of a, a sticky thing to work with, but if you can sort of emulsify that with another gravy, right? It makes for a very, very flavorful uh, sort of gravy when you work in peanut butter uh, into your ingredients. Uh, the other thing, obviously, is things like Greek yogurt, uh, which is fantastic, right? Uh, much, much better than regular yogurt and the regular dahi.
0: I use it as makeshift shrikant. I just put honey and like...
3: Actually, the process of making shrikant is exactly the same as the process as making uh, Greek yogurt, right? The, the The family of bacteria that may turn milk into Greek yogurt is slightly different from the family of bacteria that turn it into regular dahi. Uh, so that's where you get that very specific uh, kind of texture, and Shrikant is actually quite similar to that. So I would normally, if I go to Italy, my box would be filled with cheeses uh, and sausages. Oh, by the way, oh, I completely forgot. If you can, if you can get this, go to your low, closest uh, Italian store, and if you eat meat, there's something called the Indu Induja Induja sausage. It's apostrophe N D U J A. It's a Calabrian uh, sausage uh, which uses Calabrian chilies. It's very spicy, and by the way, you, it, it has so much fat. That it's literally like a paste. Okay, You can just take a tiny bit and like adobo sauce, you know, chipotle chilies, adobo sauce. Just drop it into any dish, and it will elevate it insanely. If you don't, if you don't mind it. And by the way, even if you're not someone who eats meat on a regular basis, it won't taste meaty at all. It'll actually taste fantastic. I mean, it's it, there is no there are no pieces. It's a complete paste, um, and it's actually it's a pork sausage uh, sort of thing. But it's it just transforms Indian cooking. So I think maybe I should just sort of. Uh, Maybe write a column on all the ing- ingredients that uh, uh, not available in India that that really improve Indian. Food. Some Buzzfeed listing. Let me talk.
0: Show ten percent commission for us for the idea. <laughs>
3: yeah, I, 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 maybe I, I'll promote the, the the podcast.
0: Yes, please.
1: <laughs> but um, I was gonna say I was you know when you were telling us about these like peanut butter and hacks like these sort of things, it made me think of like I often teased grad students right who'd come from India who were replacing something they knew with something like peanut butter. But that's the way you do it, right? That's how food evolves. Like, if you don't do it, how will you figure out the next big thing?
3: So wh- why, do we, why do you think most Indians eat rice or wheat? Do you think they've been eating it for thousands of years?
0: No, that's not the case. Yeah. Sorry, interrupt. can I plug in our episode? With...
3: Episode number
2: two, we talked about millets and the Green Revolution. <laughs>
0: Or, Veda, do you want to tell uh, your samosa Taco Bell hack?
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I eat... We we were talking about samosas and how they've evolved in the last episode. And, uh, you know, how aloo came in only, you know, 400 years ago. Only 400 years. Um, (laughs) And I I love eating samosa. Instead of... I used to not get chutney in the States. So I used to just have Taco Bell, mild sauce, hot sauce, hummus, guacamole. So...
3: I think uh, the seven years that I lived in the U.S., I'm sure that somebody was making a PowerPoint presentation at Taco Bell headquarters that there's, for some reason, San Antonio, Texas seems to be consuming 90% of all fire sauce um, manufactured in the U.S. Probably just me, right? I mean, I used to go collect them and use them in cooking. So as I said, you know, one of the hacks I often use is that if you're making a tomato-based gravy, uh, you're missing a trick if you don't use tomato ketchup, Uh, tomato ketchup is just so much more flavor and it's already concentrated. So use fresh tomatoes and then you add any sachet of tomato ketchup. What's even better than tomato ketchup is fire sauce uh, or any of the Taco Bell sauces or literally any of those kinds of uh, sauces, right? Uh, Because they have vinegar, they have tomato, they have onion powder, garlic powder, and a ton of other uh, flavors uh, that will really improve your... uh, Uh, dish in any
1: case. That's fantastic. Have you tried Old Bay seasoning? Because I tried it and I was like, this is Maggi Magic Masala. Like it's the same thing because it's that thing you talk about in your book where so many spices are brought together. You don't taste any one thing. It just is like a richness of flavor. So add that to your suitcase.
3: No, Maggi Masala is actually uh, whoever there was the genius who came up with it at Nestle. I think, you know, hats off, right? And it's not just Maggi Masala in India. Nestle has cracked a certain what's called a universal flavoring agent in every part of the world. So there is an equivalent of the Maggi masala in Nigeria, which by the way, the Nigerians cannot live without now. (laughs) There's something called the Maggi seasoning sauce, which Southeast Asians, Indonesians, and they cannot live without. Malaysians cannot live without. So they kind of have figured it out. If you look at the ingredients of Maggi masala, it tells you a very interesting story, right? So if you look at the ingredients of Maggi masala, there are, it includes the ingredients of Garam masala, number one, okay? That actually evokes North Indian flavors. Right. Then it has chilies, dhania, fenugreek, mustard, pepper, which essentially is sambar powder. <laughs> That's the flavor profile of and asafoetida, which is the flavor profile of sambar powder. You got South India covered with that, right? And then they add onion powder, garlic powder, ginger powder. Uh, and then they add cornstarch because, you know, in case you add too much water, uh, so the cornstarch will make sure that the maggi is thick enough. And sugar. And salt. So it's basically, there is no dish that it won't improve. (laughs) Um, And and more importantly, it'll evoke a familiarity with North Indian cuisine. It'll evoke a familiarity with South Indian cuisine. And no matter where you're from India, it's going to vaguely familiar, but not like anything in particular, right? <laughs> uh, and I think that is what tr- truly makes uh, Maggie Masala uh, and and several other mixes like uh, Old Bay seasoning. Yeah, in many cases, I think the only difference is that uh, for Ind- Indian sensitivities, they tend to avoid the addition of uh, any kind of meat uh, products for the umami part of it. But most of the versions of this will have some umami ingredient, either beef extract. Or yeast extract, or something that is very rich in glutamates.
2: And I'm now getting very curious about how you organize your kitchen. I mean, we're an audio, but now, now I'm I'm wondering how that works. <laughs>
3: uh, it's it's more chaotic than you'd believe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I keep changing. Uh, there is no one single system. I've mostly sort of I, I've got myself a fridge with uh, where half the storage is the freezer uh, which is increasingly becoming popular in India right so right. right in the west so people are starting to store stuff in freezer so I store all spices powdered spices in the freezer um, I store all floors in the freezer uh, I store uh, uh, also dry fruits uh, in addition to obviously meat and the obvious things all of that goes in the, the freezer uh, I do keep the day-to-day spices etc in a single sort of a uh, I was inspired by how Kenji Lopez organizes kitchen. This is sort of a drawer, and then he's got like huge racks with the yeah. same bottles with uh, with labels on top and so on. Uh, so that's largely what I've done for day-to-day uh, spices for most part. Uh, but it's a it's a reasonably small and minimalist kitchen, and uh, and my wife keeps a tight leash on making sure that I don't buy any more single-function gadgets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that this place, uh, and then one year later, I say no, I'm not using that. I used to find someone to donate it. To. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I just want to also, for our listeners, you know, I really want to re, you know, reinforce, go for the concept, learn the science behind, you know, the food because I was going, I was trying a new New York Times uh, cooking recipe and I was so focused on the ingredients and the steps. And I was like, oh, I'm making yeah. this fancy dish. And uh, it was like some, uh, you know, soup. And at the end of it, I realized, I yeah, maine to masoor dal. Hai. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> this red lentil soup that uh, I was uh, making didn't really look into what it was. So don't get focused on the details.
3: And, and, and for, for, for your listeners, I think the... Uh, uh, while the Kindle book is now available uh, yes. uh, internationally, the uh, the the print book will be launched uh, in the US in April. So Amazing. big supply chain and all of that. so They couldn't do it at the same time. But I think it's uh, April is when the, the physical book uh, gets there for those of you who don't like Kindle. Also.
1: Honestly, I have the Kindle book, but I'm going to buy the physical book. And I would encourage listeners to do the same because the graphics, the illustrations that I think your brother did, and some that you did, <laughs> um, are so good. And they're so interesting. And I almost want to like take a picture and put it on my fridge to kind of get into this space of with this much heat, with this much oil, with this much masala. Like it's just an easy way to start doing this, what I'm going to just call algorithmic cooking.
2: This has been my go-to gift for Christmas and for birthdays <laughs> for yeah. everyone in my family. So <laughs> it's a it's a great Thank gift.
0: <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Ashok, for coming on the show.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much. Yes, this has been great for us.
0: Thanks for listening. Ashok's book is available on Amazon. And as you said, on other platforms as well. Three C Things is Veda Shastri, Saurabh Dattar, and Geetika Kallu. We are on threedaisithings.com. And you can find all our show notes and research and references available there.
1: We're also on Instagram at Things, on Twitter at threedaisithings. Please feel free to email us at threedaisithings at gmail.com.
0: Yeah. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find our podcasts. We are obviously also on Stitcher, Spotify, and all of the other platforms.
2: Tune in in two weeks for our next episode. Thanks for listening.